one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 402 for the week of Monday, January 16th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Still what's left of his voice, Sawyer, but hanging in there. How you doing today? Doing alright, thanks, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Gee whiz, seems like we were just here. Yeah, it seems like we were here about a week ago. All right, so as we promised, we were going to come back to our regular news shows very shortly, and by very shortly, we mean this episode. However, we are switching things up a little bit. I know at the end of last season we tried to switch it up, but we've got this format, and we're going to go with this one for a while, and we think that you'll like it. This format is going to be more of literally a roundtable discussion as we go around the table, each going with a story that we found interesting during the week or that we thought was important. All right. With the exception of the first story, which Gene is going to give us two stories, we're going to go around until we run out of time. So first, Gene will give us a breaking announcement from tonight, and then we'll get started with the show. So Gene, please start us off with the new format. Thanks, Sawyer. Um, as uh, Sawyer kind of sort of alluded to here, a uh, announcement was made by Space Exploration Technologies this evening, or SpaceX. Uh, the scheduled launch of, of the Dragon. Uh, to the International Space Station on February 7th has been postponed. Uh, decision was made, uh, I believe, earlier today, and it was. I'm looking at a uh, an article from the Los Angeles Times that was published uh, today, January 16th, at about 5:30 this afternoon. Uh, the uh, spokesperson for SpaceX, Kirsten uh, Grantham basically said, quote, we believe that there are a few areas that will benefit from additional work and that will optimize the safety and success of the mission. Uh, we are now working with NASA to establish a new target launch date, but note we will continue to test and review data. We will launch when the vehicle is ready, close quote. Uh, does that have a familiar ring to it, anybody? Sounds space shuttle-esque. Yeah, exactly. It just reminded me of uh, two two individuals, Mike Moses and Mike Leinbach. Um, so, uh, again, I think SpaceX is being very, very careful. They're being very, very good, and they're making sure they've got all their ducks in a row. Uh, while they have not established a new target launch date, uh, it also means, too, that they're making sure that they've got all their I's dotted and T's crossed before they hit T0. So uh, uh, they're trying to make sure that they've got everything right. So uh, hats off to them, and uh, this might go ahead and ensure the success of the mission because there's a lot riding on this. It's not just uh, for SpaceX, 
but it's also for the ISS and giving the International Space Station some options as far as getting uh, cargo and supplies up to it. So again, they're being ultra careful, and uh, this is good in a way that I think this is good news. Uh, all right, moving right right along. Uh, of course, we had a very interesting development over the weekend. Uh, in case you've been kind of sort of you know ensconced with your Christmas revelry or your New Year's revelry and not really you know following things, uh, the uh, the Russians had launched a, uh, a vehicle called Phobos Grunt. Phobos Phobos meaning the uh, the, the Martian moon Phobos and Grunt meaning ground or soil in in uh, in Russian. Uh, this particular vehicle was uh, going to go ahead and land on the uh, Martian moon Phobos, and the interesting thing about this particular vehicle, it was going to go ahead and scoop up a piece of the soil and then return it, that soil sample, back to Earth for analysis. If this worked, it would be the first time we would get a piece of the Martian moon here, and uh, this was also going to be the first time that uh, the Russians were going to shoot for Mars. Uh, since the Mars 96 mission, which unfortunately failed. Well, the, the spacecraft was launched back on November, uh, November 8th, and unfortunately it, um, its, uh, its boosters failed to go ahead and get it out of Earth orbit. Uh, the the ground were the ground uh, teams were trying to contact the vehicle. They could not do that, and unfortunately... Uh, it essentially stranded the vehicle in low Earth orbit. Uh, this also meant, too, that it was in a decaying orbit, and uh, unfortunately, it was it was destined to essentially become a piece of uh, space rubbish and uh, re-enter the uh, the Earth's atmosphere, which it did um, over the weekend. It did that on Sunday. Um, where it landed, we're not exactly too sure. Uh, there are several uh, several reported entry points. Uh, the one that uh, was initially reported uh, was the impact point was somewhere in the Pacific, uh, about uh, you know just right off of Wellington Island near near Chile. That was one particular Im- impact point. Uh, another one was was off Argentina, uh, and another one had it somewhere between New Zealand and and uh, and the Chilean coast. So we haven't really pinpointed exactly where this thing sort of disintegrated. Problem was, too, that it also had a lot of propellants on board that were potentially toxic, and there was a lot of uh, news around that. If those propellants were to go ahead and hit a populated area, it could cause some problems. Uh, However, it looks like the vehicle sort of plunged harmlessly into the sea at this point. Um, if anybody's kind of sort of interested, I, I did some uh, significant tracking of uh, of the uh, vehicle's last uh, last few few moments, and those uh, those are ar- archived in my uh, my Twitter feed, Gene JM twenty nine. So if you want to fish through that, you'd be more than happy to do it. The thing was that we really don't know what the cause of the engine failure was, and so on. And um, one of the the interesting components of this. Was a was a report uh, by by the Russians, uh, and I'm quoting here uh, Bloomberg Businessweek here, um, saying that uh, the uh, the Phobos Grunt mission may have been a victim of sabotage. 
uh, Roscosmos chief Vladimir Potvigan basically shouted out that he believes that, quote, foreign powers, close quote, are responsible for sabotaging this particular flight. And um, I'm going to go ahead and also quote uh, uh, veteran uh, James Oberg, who has uh, written several – has been following the Russian program for a long time and has, has looked, at, um, looked at Russia's space program. And he's essentially saying that you know, they know for a fact that you know, orbital mechanics dictates that any orbital adjustments have to be made halfway around, uh, halfway around during the first orbit to stabilize the orbit and circularize it. So, you know, to say that that could have some foreign power could have monkeyed around with 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 the spacecraft at that point. Is just you know kind of sort of ridiculous. I think what they need to do, what what the Russians really really need to do, is look at um, look at what went wrong. Try to go ahead and find out was it something in their own processes that kind of sort of threw things for for a loop, or was it something that you know they they didn't have the right people in the right places? Maybe they've got to get more people. Maybe it's an aging workforce type thing. I remember reading an article about that. And I also remember that uh, it indicated, too, that uh, the Russians might have cut some corners on the spacecraft. So they need to go back and look at what they did on this particular vehicle and kind of analyze it and find out, okay, what went wrong and what can we do to fix it so we can go ahead and try again. Uh and that's what we kind of sort of do here. I mean, we, we did it with shuttle. We've done it with other, with other, uh, other aspects of our program, where we've gone ahead and we've taken a look at things. If something has gone wrong, um, we go ahead, analyze it, try to figure out what it is, and then go back and we go fly again. So I fully anticipate the Russians doing that. Uh, kind of sort of tailor made <laughs> uh, on this on the heels of this. Uh, there's a new IMAX movie coming out uh, called Space Junk, which kind of outlines the whole uh, deal on on space space debris and why it's so critical and, and so on. I believe that particular film is due for release this month at several venues. I know here in the uh, the New York, New Jersey tri-state area here, Connecticut tri-state area here, um, that the Liberty Science Center. It's uh, is going to go ahead and run that that film in their IMAX theater, and I think that is set to open in February. So just go ahead and keep it keep an eye out for it. Uh, it it's sort of a it it basically shows how the problem started and what steps are being taken to mitigate that particular problem the, the particular problem of space debris. Uh, I will also go ahead and ask listeners to take a look at uh, Talking Space number three three seven with uh, Mr. Franz Geil and Dr. Lucy Rogers, who are both uh, kind of sort of working on on space debris and trying to, to develop ways of mitigating the problem. Dr. Rogers is is uh, is really spearheading the, the whole thing where uh, uh, Mr. Franz Geil is sort of an, acting in an advisory capacity uh, since he's still tied to the U.S. military. So, uh, again, if you want to learn more about the debris issue, uh, you might want to go ahead and and review that That's that program as well. Mark, you've got a couple other interesting little tidbits with uh, space debris, no? 
Uh, yes, but I'm not going to tell them all because that would uh, I would lose my turn in the uh, rotation here. NASA has uh, talking about space junk. NASA has a standard called standard 8719.14 requirement 4.7-1, and the writer that uh, I'm referring to here is the writer of a blog called Geeked on Goddard. The writer's name is Dan Pendick, and I thought this was particularly entertaining. But he refers to that standard as the two-pound frozen chicken rule. The requirement states that the risk of significant injury from a piece of debris re-entering Earth's atmosphere must be no greater than 1 in 10,000. Significant injury is defined as a blow that delivers 15 joules of energy to the unprotected human body. 15 joules is roughly the equivalent of a two-pound frozen chicken falling out of your freezer on your foot, says Scott Hall, an orbital debris engineer at Goddard Space Flight Center. It's going to hurt. Ouch. So that's, that's my contribution was we talked about uh, Ouch. Yeah, the, just to sort of re-add on that too, um, I guess back in 1995, it was sort of a gentleman's agreement by all of the space powers that they would design future current satellite, you know, future satellites to basically, there was a, a thing they called des- design to demise where uh, any future spacecraft that would go ahead and enter uh, the, Earth's, the Earth's atmosphere would basically break up. Uh, but there's still, you know, before that, there's still a lot of debris up there and the, the cleanup is, is really, really, really going to be immense. So, again, we've got to go ahead and get our act together. Continuing around the loop here, sticking with Russians and building rockets. And, you know, you were mentioning that there might have been, you know, faulty manufacturing with Russia. And that might help if they actually had a secure facility to put their rockets, including, you know, anybody may be able to get in there, including maybe a teenage girl. Her name? Lana Sator. The place she snuck into? The NPO Energo Smash factories just outside of Moscow. And they build some kind of important things, such as uh, the engines that power the Soyuz, the Zenit 3SL, and the Anarga and Baikal launch vehicles, and um, one that may be a little closer to home, the RD-180 engine, which powers the first stage of the Atlas V. How did she get in, you ask? Well, that's an interesting question. What she do is, she hopped over a fence. And as easy as that, she hopped over a fence, she got in, no guards, no security, nobody. Just a That's couple it. of just a couple of closed circuit TV cameras and pictures out of this now that look like they're out of Star Wars or some other science fiction thing. And there's actually a website which I'll post a link to in the description of hers where she posted these pictures and the Russian government not too happy with her. They basically want her to take the pictures down or else face more consequences. Her reaction? You let me in. I was able to get in. I'm posting them. And she's been posting them. These are some crazy pictures of inside the facility. It looks old and decrepit, but some of the stuff is brand spanking new in the pictures. All right, let me get this straight, Sawyer. She just kind of jumped a fence and waltzed in? Uh, In your area? Best way to put it. She hopped the fence, went in, and you know who was there? Nobody. Oh, my God. Absolutely nobody to stop her and say, you can't come in here. All there was was, you know, a couple of closed-circuit TV cameras and no actual person. Wow. And have, have, have the Russians gone ahead and indicated if she does not cease and desist posting the photographs what they may do? Are they talking, you know, threatening to bring the site down? Are they talking, you know, 
are they going to do the American thing and threaten to sue? Are they what? What are they? What are they doing? On her website, as I was mentioning, I'll post a link to that. She actually posted the letters that the government sent her, and basically the letters said when you translate them that they that the situation will get quote unquote much worse if she keeps posting photos. And she posted the letters on her site just to shove it in their faces, basically. Wow, it, it just sounds like she's her. her her attitude is all right. Bring it. <laughs> exactly. To quote Gizmodo, it looks like one of the pictures looks like an abandoned core in the Death Star. Oh, jeez. But um, again, they're they're not being specific as far as the action they're going to take, you know, or anything like that. They're just saying the situation's just going to get worse. I mean, that's in yeah. A basically, way, they're just saying you don't want to know what's going to happen, so don't keep doing it. Hmm, curious. That's what it seems like. I haven't actually been able to read the letters. I don't speak Russian. (laughs) Wow. So this And her whole website is in Russian. Sorry, you might want to keep an eye on this one. This 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 could get interesting. Yeah, literally. The the actual letters in Russian, unfortunately I can't read them, but the actual website in Russian has the letter, and for what she's written you can use Google Translator. Wow. That's still stunning. Uh, I know. Even looking at the images as I speak right now, some of these look absolutely amazing. And she just popped right in. What's really frightening is this is sort of the linchpin for the uh, for the Atlas V, no doubt. And because it's, its engines are coming from that facility. So uh, I wonder what uh, – has NASA reacted at all to any of this and, and as far as the – so the security at the uh, at, at the facility? Not that I have seen. The article I'm reading is a Gizmodo article, and it didn't mention anything about that. Hmm. Just uh, if if I were if I were uh, somebody that that would want to use that engine, and in one of my vehicles to to send a I don't know a probe out to Mars, say. <laughs> um, I would be very, very worried that you know again, you know, somebody can just walk in there and and start playing with with the facility and playing with the parts and all that. That's 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 a not a good. Ah, but you see, that is an add-on option. If you want security, we charge extra for that for your rocket plant. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've made one round around the circle. Let's make a second round. Gene, do you have another story? Yeah, a bit of a follow-up. We we had mentioned on on our opening program. Uh, this year, we talked a little bit about the Mars Science Laboratory, and uh, we discussed a lot of its science and, and what we uh, we hope to do once it gets gets there. Well, the uh, the vehicle uh, went ahead on January 11th, about a week ago. Uh, it went ahead and, and performed its uh, largest uh, path refine maneuver. I believe it lasted about a hundred and about 178 minutes altogether. Um, it was a series of about uh, uh, several burns, but uh, everything went extraordinarily well, and uh, the Mars Science Lab is well on its way uh, to Gale Crater at this point. So I'm sure the, the vehicle will, will go ahead and, and perform some some additional uh, trim maneuvers as it goes out, but so far so good. Uh, the vehicle is 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 well on target. So uh, all the best to the uh, to the MSL team, and we'll be watching that with grand interest as uh, it goes ahead and uh, lands 
on Mars on August 5th, 2012. So uh, we'll be watching that again very, very closely. Well, I want to talk about the inky black of space. If we think in more pop culture terms, let's go back to 1965 in July when Charles Schultz first used the phrase in the Peanuts comic strip where Snoopy said it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> and he was often seen sitting at his typewriter on top of the doghouse, uh, you know, penning his, his various prose and books that he was uh, characterized to write. But anyway, back to the inky black of space. Uh, black, incidentally, I looked up on Wikipedia, and the definition uh, that they have for it, it says, in physics, a black body is a perfect absorber of light. Okay, so I'm going to connect with physics now. I'll leave the comic strip world. And I thought it was interesting that on the Wikipedia page, it has a little box, and it has the little uh, technical ways of identifying black as a color itself, and inside is a window that is, believe it or not, black. More importantly, though, what I wanted to tell you about is that NASA has been a, a party in developing a new material that is darker than anything previously found before. Now, what they've got is a material that absorbs 99.5% of UV and visible light dipping to 98% absorbent in the longer or far infrared bands. And what it is, this makes it an ideal uh, substance for suppressing stray light that can contaminate measurements of bright objects. It can overwhelm observations of dim objects far out in space. Now, satellite engineers are looking at this to, uh, currently they actually paint baffles and other components on satellites to minimize stray light that ricochets off the surfaces. But the best that they do with uh, some of that technology is absorbing 90% of the light, and that's with paint, which adds weight, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here we are with multi-walled carbon nanotubes. Now, these little nanotubes have uh, been developed where they can actually grow them on silicone nitride, titanium, and stainless steel, and those are materials that are commonly used in space-based scientific instruments. Also, the coating that they've developed with these carbon nanotubes absorbs laser light, converts it to heat. It can be registered with a pyroelectric material, and they mentioned something I know nothing about, which is a lot of what I am uh, have read in this subject, but uh, it's titanium tantalate in this case. And the rise in temperature generates a current which is measured to determine the power of a laser. The blacker the coating, the more efficiently absorbs light instead of reflecting it, and the more accurate the measurements they get. Now, the importance of this strikes me as being, think of the things that lasers are a part of. They can be used in medical applications, certainly communications. Um, many, many, many parts of our world is, is, uh, is, is laser technology. Um, back to the carbon nanotubes, um, the engineers at Goddard Space Flight Center, they found that uh, these carbon nanotubes, they're uh, 10,000 times thinner than a strand of human hair. And by growing these carbon nanotubes on a flat surface, they actually stick up. And I, I found a picture that uh, 
that shows it looks like a crater, like not a crater as in an impact crater, but a, an actual hole down to an extremely flat surface. And it's surrounded by what looks like fine filaments and threads that are uh, where they were torn, where this whole punch was made. But you can see that the surrounding perimeter of this hole, that they're perfectly vertical. But um, they found that uh, with this development, they've extended the absorption capability by 50 times what they previously had before. And they said that uh, it works across multiple wavelengths from ultraviolet to far infrared, visible light, of course, and no one has achieved this milestone yet. So they've done some phenomenal science. Uh, kudos to the folks at Goddard. Also, the, the initial, uh, what I read about this was in the phys.org, P-H-Y-S-O-R-G.com, and it referred to a 2008 paper by Rennesler Polytechnic Institute on the darkest man-made material ever. So this started with research back a few years ago, and it continues with uh, with what the folks at Goddard have improved upon. Mark, what would be the, the practical applications to the technology? Space-based, I would imagine any kind of telescope or, or space uh, measurement uh, device that's that's using you know any any part of that spectrum that we talked that I talked about um, it gives you well for instance th this goes back to ancient FAA technology but a device that I've worked on that measures visibility out on the airport the very the oldest that I had experience with consisted of a, a sealed beam light bulb at 250 feet away from a detector and the detector just measured the amount of light that it was getting. So when you had rain, fog, whatever, the amount of light getting to that detector would go down. Well, the barrel of that detector was about a, about a two-and-a-half-foot-long barrel, about uh, five, six inches in diameter, and the inside of that barrel was black. And if you took the detector out of the uh, frame that it was mounted in and you looked down that barrel, you know, you didn't see the barrel. All you saw was black, and then, of course, you saw the the uh, the opening at the far end and the, the field out beyond that. And so, to me, that was a, a, a very obvious use of, of, of black. There was no reflectance. There was no scattering of light inside the barrel of this uh, visibility measurement device that I had worked with 20, 25 years ago. So, it's got a lot of applications, and as well as measurement of lasers and a number of other things. But the scientists seem to be pretty excited about it. They're looking at thermal detector coatings. And, and again, this is, you know, when you talk about uh, light science and lasers, that's a whole field that, uh, again, I, like I say so often, I'd love to know more about. But it's kind of interesting to see developments like this that come from the folks that are, are part of NASA. And uh, I like to say your tax dollars at work. All right, continuing along, while we're talking about space and colors, well, they just took a look at the Milky Way galaxy, and they tried to figure out what color it is. And it's an interesting thing that they found out. The color of the Milky Way, as it was described on Space.com, as, quote, fine-grained new spring snow seen in the early morning light about an hour after dawn is the best match for the Milky Way's color. Now, bizarre question is, how did they come up with this? Yeah. <laughs> well, what they did was they knew the basic idea of what the Milky Way looks like. And so what they did was they looked out into space and they tried to find 
lots of galaxies that look like the Milky Way and try and figure out what color they are. Because we really can't do that from Earth. Because if you look at some pictures of the Milky Way galaxy from Earth, you see all these different beautiful colors. But then again, think about why it would be called the Milky Way, as in Milky White. But the reason that they mention this is, as it was quoted again on Space.com, was, quote, The problem is similar to determining the overall color of the Earth when you're only able to tell what Pennsylvania looks like, end quote. But if you go around and take a look at other parts of the Earth, maybe you could piece it together and try and figure out the general color. And that's basically what they did, and that's when they came up with that very descriptive white. Huh. So after a, a new fallen snow at dawn, I can go out and, or near dawn, I can go out and open up and go, oh, that's the color of the Milky Way. <laughs> if you can't remember that, they composed a haiku for the discovery. Oh, no. <laughs> Look at new spring snow. See the river of heaven an hour after dawn. Hmm. Which, in other words, the specifically the color, to, for those that don't really think about snow and think more in a sciencey way, the color temperature is that of about a 4,840 Kelvin light bulb. Wow. So it's bluer than incandescent, which is 3,000, and redder than the white on a TV or noonday light, which is 6,500 Kelvin. Wow. <laughs> it's a very unique one. So now you know the exact color of our galaxy. Hmm. Okay. So uh, I can go to my uh, my painter and <laughs> if I want to paint a wall and say, okay, paint that. Well, anyway, we'll we'll, we'll go back from from uh, the esoteric colors in the Milky Way to uh, back to spaceflight in a way. NASA Administrator Charles Bolden. Uh, visited uh, Lockheed Martin Space Systems in uh, uh, in uh, Colorado, uh, where, where they are basically building uh, the Orion. And uh, uh, he also wanted to go ahead and take a look at uh, some of the other planetary uh, missions that are that are also slated that are that Lockheed Martin is building out of the same same facility. And um, Bolden saying, saying, quote, and I'm, I'm going to quote the article here. This is uh, from the Denver Post, uh, dated, I believe it is uh, January 11th. He said, uh, uh, quote, when I go to Congress and the Aerospace Advisory Council, um, I'm going to attest to uh, the Orion's durability. I'm feeling extraordinarily comfortable about keeping my crew safe. Uh, so it looks like um, the Orion is is coming along quite nicely. The final cost for the, for the spacecraft looks like it's going to be in the range of about five billion dollars. Um, Orion received about uh, 1.2 billion dollars in December uh, as part of uh, the uh, 2012 budget, and uh, NASA also announced this week, this past week, that it's going to go and head and add about 375 million to uh, Lockheed's uh, Orion contract so the uh, so the, the the company can go ahead and essentially buy a booster that's going to go ahead and test uh, the boilerplate vehicle around the uh, 2014 time frame um, NASA however is taking a look at the service module for the Orion and there is still on the books a possibility that a modified version of the automated transfer vehicle or ATV that uh, the European Space Agency is building uh, may actually come into play 
to serve as the service module for the Orion. Now, um, talks are extraordinarily preliminary, and I'm quoting an article here uh, from Aviation Week and Space Report, uh, dated January 10, by none other than a good friend of uh, the program here, uh, Mr. Frank Mooring Jr. Uh, 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 Bill Gerstenmeier is stressing that the talks are very, very preliminary, and uh, he he also said that this is a political hot topic here. The reason is, obviously, that, uh, okay, fine, you bring in ESA to go ahead and hook up this, uh, you know, the ATV to act as a service module for the Orion. Um, aren't you going ahead and not allowing uh, a U.S. company to go ahead and build this thing? You know, why are you farming it out to especially, a, uh, you know, especially Europe on what should be an intrinsically U.S. vehicle? There are pros and cons to that. The pros, obviously, are to keep the cost down. Uh, the the cons to it, again, you know, is is the political football aspect of it. So this is something that we're just going to have to watch and wait and see what happens with that. Um, however, uh, targets for the Orion uh, still remain to to be uh, be totally com- and completely defined. Again, I'm going to be looking at. An article here, uh, also from Aviation Week, uh, and again written by uh, uh, Frank Mooring Jr., uh, he describes um, in the article uh, how uh, John Shannon, the former uh, space shuttle pro- program manager, has been sort of on assignment looking at uh, architectures for uh, for future spaceflight as far as uh, the human exploration aspects of it are. Um, and what they're trying to do is basically fit the Orion in as the ultimate Swiss army knife, if you will, for, for space exploration. And I'll quote the article here um, uh, where what uh, John Shannon had said, quote, if you step back and think of what we're doing, we're looking at a capability, both the, um, the space launch system, which is the, uh, the heavy lift booster that, that is being proposed and the Orion that could support multiple destinations at multiple times. And I'm sorry I attributed that quote to uh, to John Shannon. That was actually uh, Bill Gerstenmeier. Um, he said, so, you know, instead of building a single vehicle that supports just a specific mission, we're going to have a vehicle that can support multiple missions. Um, that's a good sign in that it is it's going to be an awfully flexible vehicle. But to me, it also says that you know, we don't know what's coming down the pike. So we're going to go ahead and build this thing so it could go ahead and, and respond to anything that may come, come into play, meaning that it's not going to be simply like the shuttle, which is just essentially a, a low-Earth orbit vehicle that can you know, you know, oddly, you know, could go ahead and, and exploit low Earth orbit and do it very well. But this vehicle is going to be the essentially a huge exploration vehicle. Again, just adding to that, we talked about the SLS. Uh, the space shuttle main engines have been sit, that have been sitting over at Kennedy Space Center since the end of the program. A few of them are starting to make their way. Uh, I believe toward the um, this happened on. Friday of last week, I think, a few of those vehicles, a few of those engines are starting to make their way to the uh, Stennis uh, Space Center in Mississippi for testing. 
uh, and they will be incorporated into the new SL, SLS program. So some of the, the engines that we are going to see that has sent um, uh, the orbiters aloft uh, will be getting a new life. Uh, they will be uh, being they will be used on the SLS. So again, something to watch. So the 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 underpinnings for the new program are moving forward. But again, we just don't know what the destinations are yet. So you know, again, I mean, grant you, we are doing flexibility stuff, but by the same token, too, I think that that. That dictates a lack of, you know, and I really hate to say this, I think it dictates a lack of leadership in several areas. I'm not blaming NASA itself, but I'm blaming the politicos that have to drive NASA, that tell NASA that these are your marching orders. So there's got to be, dare I say it, the politicians have to wake up and, and give NASA some decent marching orders. That's just my opinion. Along the lines of uh, the many jobs, the many tasks that NASA does, I've got some information for you on something that was discussed at the American Geophysical Union meeting December 5th in San Francisco. NASA scientists and scientists from Ohio State University talked about something that basically they said we had a 1 in 10 million chance to observe, and they were able to observe something very unique with a NASA satellite and with a couple of European satellites. Now, what they observed was, if you think back to March of 2011, the uh, devastating tsunami that hit the northeast, uh, the the earthquake was off the northeastern coast of Japan, caused what they referred to, and it's been long hypothesized, a merging tsunami. The tsunami actually doubled in intensity over rugged ocean ridges, ridges, and it amplified the destructive power at landfall. Now, what they saw with the NASA and European radar satellites was that they caught two wave fronts on that day. The fronts merged to form a single double high wave front far out at sea, and that wave was capable of traveling long distances without losing power. The undersea ridges, the undersea mountain chains pushed the waves together along certain directions from the tsunami's origin. Uh, Back in the uh, 1960 or I guess it was 1960, there was a Chilean tsunami that killed 200 people in Japan and Hawaii. Now, they theorized that it could have been a merging tsunami that, uh, that caused that devastation across, across the ocean, but they never had any definite observations, anything that they could really pinpoint as to that being a valid theory. Well, now they do, thanks to the Jason 1 and Jason 2, the Jason 2 was a NASA European, those two satellites were NASA European joint, and the uh, European Space Agency, Envisat, uh, they all carry radar altimeters which measure sea level changes on the accuracy of a few centimeters, and those satellites actually crossed the tsunami at different locations, measuring the wave fronts as they occurred. The Jason 1 was launched 10 years ago, which was uh, early December of 2001. And what they're going to gain from this is the ability to do better forecasting of tsunami danger in specific coastal regions around the world. If you think about all the measurements that have been made of the subfloor and the depths of the ocean and undersea mountain ranges, well, now they can put an observation to what they know is, is down below and maybe come up with some better predictions. Once again, your tax dollars at work. And I think it's to me, signifies the importance that the big budget items that NASA has don't steal from the small programs 
because there's many, many, many small programs that have some absolutely phenomenal science that goes far beyond just what the, the bottom line would show for a single research study. Hey, Mark, can, can this whole system also be used in, in tsunami predictions, you know, after, after an earthquake happens, um, and not only predictions, but also could it go ahead and assist in, um, you know, alerting folks that, you know, you, you know, you have an impending tsunami coming and, you know, this is what, what we estimate how long you guys have got to go ahead and prepare yeah, sure. They're they're talking about tools based on this research that could help officials forecast the potential for tsunami jets to merge and uh, could give them more accurate uh, hazard maps, protecting communities and the infrastructure of our of our world. And if you remember back, I, I recall a conversation we had a long time ago on the show with Brian Shiro, yes. who worked at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, and he had talked about in, uh, I believe, one of his blogs of the the idea of having space-based assets that could watch the oceans, that could watch the, the earth below and see some of these small changes that could give them uh, better predictions. And, you know, this, like I said at the beginning, this is a one in 10 million chance they caught the, they caught this with satellites that just happened to be overhead and measuring at the right times in the right place. Again, imagine what you could do if you had some dedicated assets to build on the science that this is uh, giving us a hint of. Impressive, and again, as as you pointed out too, uh, NASA has a has a huge portfolio of work that it that it it's charged with, and it's good to see that stuff like this is is still going strong. You know, despite you know the the, the large ticket I- items like SLS, like um, like Orion and so on, um, going forward and running into its the the problems there. That because that program is going, uh, those two programs are going on. Smaller programs like this that you know are important to our planet and important to essentially our shorelines and and the lives of the individuals that that depend on those shorelines for for their livelihood and and um, just their lives in general. Uh, can go ahead and, and get this type of, uh, you know, these type of um, information and, and monitoring and so on to make sure that that uh, if you know, God forbid, we have a situation like uh, like we had in um, in Japan recently, we you know the, the amount of lives can be saved. So that's that's grand news, seriously. The human spaceflight guy here has found a lot of stories this week that have nothing to do with human spaceflight besides the rockets. This is another very interesting space one about the number of planets in our galaxy. Now, how would they even figure out the number? It's through something called microlensing, which this is from Phil Plate, bad astronomer, on Discovery's website. He describes it as, quote, the gravity of a star or planet can bend the light coming from an even more distant star, briefly magnifying it. The way the star light gets brighter over time can reveal the mass of the object doing the magnifying, the lens, as it were. If a star passes in front of another star, you get a rise and then a fall of brightness. But if a planet is orbiting that nearer star, you get a second, smaller bump as well. And this kind of event takes an extraordinarily precise alignment, so they're extremely rare. So how do you deal with that? 
well, you just take a look at a lot, a lot of stars. So, yeah, astronomers did that. Basically, they can extrapolate some data from that, and when we bring in the numbers, the most basic result, the one that's causing a stir now, is that they find that there are likely hundreds of billions of planets orbiting other stars in our galaxy alone. To put that into perspective, that's believed that's about how many stars there are in our galaxy, hundreds of billions. So basically, when you figure this out, it averages out to one planet per star, even though we know since our solar system has eight or nine, depending on if you count Pluto, not all of them may have them, but that's a pretty extreme number. Yeah, I'm thinking, Sawyer, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, the Kepler mission is going to go ahead and benefit from any of this data. That would really be interesting. It might be, because the one thing is the planet sizes may be a little different. Yeah, I'm, I'm also thinking, too, you've, you've got all of these worlds out there. And I'd love to know, again, what the percentage of uh, these worlds are that possibly could be inhabited or be set up so um, that life could theoretically exist. And uh, that could also be a bit of a boon for uh, the SETI folks. Not to mention space tourism. Yeah, very true. Because, <laughs> again, from Phil Plate on this website, he also mentions that they do a breakdown into approximately the planet types of what they're believing it would be. And, again, these all have a plus or minus percentage with them, which are pretty big percentages. But they figure that 17%, plus or minus 6 or 9%, of the stars host Jupiter-mass planets. 52% of them, plus or minus 22 to 29%, host a planet with a mass near Neptune. And this is even more startling. 62%, plus or minus 35 to 37% of them, have planets with a mass between 5 to 10 times that of Earth. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, that's just, wow. <laughs> I, I, I was reading this, and NASA posted an article on this as well on NASA.gov, and that's pretty amazing, especially thinking back, as Phil Plate notices, back when he was studying in 1990, you know how many planets they knew in the universe orbiting another star? There wasn't many. <laughs> Try zero. Yeah, it wasn't many at all. Might be again, though. This is just want to stress this that, again, this is an estimate based on the results that they got. And also that it's not that every planet has one. It's possible, but as our own solar system proves, you may have one that has eight, and then you take a look at seven more. And they have zero, and you still get the same numbers. But that is pretty impressive, though. Yeah, it, indeed it is. And I, I just hope that uh, it, uh, it it sounds promising. So hopefully, who knows, maybe one of those one of those places around one of those stars is, is looking back at a rather obscure uh, G25 class star and uh, entertaining an absurd notion. So it would be kind of neat to find out if that's the case. A G25 class star that looks like white snow and <laughs> yes exactly and that whole long poem <laughs> so on that very intellectual note that will bring this episode to its conclusion and we hope everybody enjoyed the new format if you have any comments or questions regarding any of the stories or the format itself we'd love to hear from you you can check out talkingspaceonline.com and all of our contact information is there twitter facebook and email so I'd like to thank everybody who joined us today. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a lot of fun, Sawyer. Thanks a whole lot. 
Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. January 19th, Delta 4 launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Be there. <laughs> Aloha. <laughs> we'll see if anybody will be there. <laughs> but in the meantime, we'd like to thank everybody for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.